This evening's reading is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that come to judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me say good evening and and have my welcome to Jay's. It's very good to see you um, with us. And please do keep page uh, um, 1006 open in front of you. Um, That will help, hopefully, as we follow through. Um, What is, as you would have heard that reading, um, some some material that on first reading may sound a little bit technical, and and how's that going to encourage us? But actually, there's a truth in this passage which is wonderfully encouraging. So please stick with me long enough, um, carefully enough, um, to, to, to get to that point. And I'll pray for God's help to that end. Let's pray. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, But now he has spoken in his son. Father, we pray that you would help us to leave tonight appreciating the goodness and the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ, even more. Because we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, You'll see an outline of where we're going on uh, the back of the sheet you were given on the way in. And you'll see the question I want to begin with, the topic for tonight, is forgiveness and how difficult it is. So I don't know the last time uh, when you needed to forgive someone for something or you were asked for forgiveness. I don't know if that was a relatively trivial thing recently or something really quite serious. If it was something serious, you probably remember it. And it probably hurt. I'm sure it wasn't easy. There's, There's a cliche that goes around that says the hardest words to say, the two hardest words in the English language are, um, I'm sorry, and really mean it. I think it's at least as true that the words, I forgive you, are pretty hard to say. 
if you really mean it. And by really mean it, I mean I forgive you fully, totally, without strings attached. The kind of forgiveness that says, I'm not going to hold it against you later. I'm not going to keep bringing it up. I'm not going to keep acting differently. That kind of wipe the slate clean completely kind of forgiveness, that is not easy where there have been deep hurts or serious wrongs or repeated letdowns. And of course, serious wrongs and repeated letdowns is exactly how we as human beings have treated our Creator God. Tonight, we're not actually thinking about our forgiveness of each other. We're thinking about His forgiveness of us. How hard is it for Him to forgive us? Now, we're tackling forgiveness partly because it's a huge topic in Hebrews 8 to 10. Um, it, It lies right at the heart of the new covenant relationship that Christians enjoy with God. And which is what 8 to 10 of of Hebrews, these chapters, are all about. Uh, Last week, we saw a couple of amazing blessings in the New Covenant. Uh, The New Covenant blessings, they're they're far better than what God's people uh, got to enjoy before Jesus. They're actually far better than, I think, lots of Christians we realize. Sometimes we become a a little over-familiar, under-appreciative, perhaps even cold to our privileges. And last week, uh, particularly in chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, we saw two huge blessings in the, old co- in the New Covenant sorry, that enable us to approach God. So I'll just recap briefly. Firstly, whereas for Israel, in their kind of tabernacle tent, their holy tent, God's presence was actually off-limits. There was a big safety curtain in the tabernacle. If you weren't... Uh, Uh, high priest, you couldn't go into the most holy place, the throne of God's presence, and even the high priest only every so often. But now Jesus has opened the doors to heaven. We've been singing about it all night. That's the first blessing. The second blessing, though, it's not just that God removes the barrier. He also cleans our consciences. That was the second blessing. Uh, End of verse 14, where we left it last time. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All the way back at the start of humanity, when we first rebelled against God, uh, there was a rupture in our relationship with God. That partly happened because God expelled the first humans from his presence. It also happened because they hid from him in shame. And Jesus can fix both. Remove the no-entry sign and clean the conscience so that we have confidence to approach. That's the new covenant. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But so far, so recap. Direct access, deep, clean consciences was the blessing last week. But here's the thing. Both of those are only possible if there's forgiveness. Real, full forgiveness. So actually, tonight's blessing, forgiveness, that we're thinking about, is more fundamental even even than those other two. There would be no direct access. There would be no deep clean of the conscience without proper forgiveness. In fact, without an unprecedented level of forgiveness. Not limited, caveated, partial, temporary forgiveness, but full, total, complete, perfect forgiveness. 
that aspect of the new covenant is so important that our author actually uses it as the brackets around these three chapters. And so let me just show you that before we dive into our verses. Just turn back to chapter 8, verse, uh, or ap- chapter eight verse 12 is when, where we're going to go. Wonderfully, Jay actually read this out at the start of the service. I, I didn't realize he was going to. I was very glad when he did. Um, in chapter 8, uh, we get this long quote from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, a quote where God announced that he was going to make this new covenant. That begins in verse 8 of chapter 8. Um, but the verse we're looking at is verse 12. The last verse he chooses to quote that we've heard already tonight. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That is the kind of total, complete kind of forgiveness. I won't even remember their sins anymore. Gone. The slate wiped completely clean. The database deleted. The CCTV blanked. The moral overdraft cleared. That's where the section started. And then just flick on to the, the, the end of this argument, to chapter 10, verse uh, 16 and 17. This is where he comes into land just before he applies it from verse 19 onwards of chapter 10. And and you get it again there. So verse 16, here's the covenant I'll make with them, the new covenant. And verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering of sin. So that huge promise of forgiveness, or perhaps better, that promise of huge forgiveness sits right at the heart of the new covenant. That's why the conscience can be completely cleaned. That's why the the safety curtain can go up and be removed between a holy God and unholy people. It's a massive deal, God's full forgiveness of us in the new covenant. But tonight's question is, how hard is that? How hard was it for God to provide full forgiveness? Those of us who have some very strained relationships with friends or wider family or at home, we know that even for human beings, forgiveness can be very hard. The more serious the wrong that's been done, the higher the stakes, the more it's been repeated, the harder it is to forgive and really forget. The question tonight is how hard is it for God? a good God, a holy, pure, perfect God to provide that kind of total forgiveness. At which point, perhaps if if you're not a Christian here, we are really glad you're here, um, perhaps you think, well, of course, of course God will forgive us. And of course he will. That's his job, isn't it? That's just what he does. The kind of fuzzy grandpa version. In the end, he'll let everyone into heaven. In the end, he'll say, well... Humans will be humans, kids will be kids. I've mentioned a few times the kind of spiritual complacency I think we can have in a post-Christian culture. I think that's it again, that sense of a vague collective memory that, of course, God is merciful and kind and forgiving. Without remembering, how can he be? As in, how is that actually possible for a good and just God? And we struggle to forgive. It's for a range of reasons, isn't it? They've done it before. They meant to do it. They've deeply hurt us. And particularly this one, if I let it go, 
What does it say about the seriousness of the situation? Would that just be taking the whole thing too lightly? Well, if we face that dilemma, how much more for the living God, the judge of all the world? God can't just say, well, it doesn't matter that much. Those awful headlines this week of a police officer abusing their position to prey on people sexually. Can that just be forgotten? It's awful. Or the Israelites, who at times sacrifice their children to other gods, or at times abandon their spouses to sleep around. Can God, can God just say, well, forget that? In fact, the longer you pause to think about it, the more troubling forgiveness becomes. How can a just God forgive genuine, serious wrongdoing without tearing the fabric of a moral universe? How can he maintain his perfect, unblemished character and allow sinners to come near? How can a good God say, I'll just forget the evil? We think we find it hard to forgive. On the surface, you might say that it's theologically, morally, and judicially impossible for a good God to forgive. And yet, right at the heart of God's promises of the new covenant was forgiveness. Full forgiveness. Not a lesser punishment or a delayed punishment or a temporary reprieve but a full wipe clean of the guilty conscience. How is it possible? Well, in a, in a short answer, and if you want to zone out for the rest of the talk, this is the important bit, so just listen to this. In the short answer, Jesus' death makes it possible. Jesus' death, that's what tonight is about. It's what our first point is about, and really the next two points are really just saying the same point again, slightly more slowly and in more detail. So um, our first point, Jesus' death paid the price required. As we read through our verses, I don't know if you noticed how many times the word blood comes up. Six. Death comes up three times. And really, blood is just shorthand for death. And so really, this is all about the death of Jesus, the necessity of Jesus' death. So verse 15 then, which is like the headline. And we'll go slowly through this verse, because I think if we can get our heads around this, it will help with the rest. Verse 15. Let me read it. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has recurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's a lot packed in there, and I realize people in Edinburgh don't tend to talk like this, so let's go through it phrase by phrase and work out what's going on. And that language of mediator, that's just the go-between, the bridge. Jesus is the bridge between Christians and God, um, a holy God and his sinful people. And he is the bridge that works. If we want to get right with the real living God, the one who made us and will call us to account, well, Jesus is the mediator and the bridge that works. You can see he works, because look at the next bit of the verse. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's a big deal that they can actually get the inheritance. As you go through the Bible story, inheritance is a big deal. God promised right back with Abraham. He promised to bless his people, bless this family. 
And those promises get passed on through the generations. And as, as the Bible goes on, it becomes clear that blessing is not just one land, the land of Canaan. No, God has a rest promised, an inheritance that's way bigger and better, a new heavens and new earth, a perfect world where everything is put right. That hope had been held out, that inheritance offered. And yet people's sin, his own people's sin and rejection of him kept meaning rather than heading to that hope while they kept failing. So look at this. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus can actually make it happen. How does he make it happen? Well, at the end of the verse, since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The reason we can have full forgiveness, the reason we can have hope that eternity is a certainty, not a pipe dream, is because Jesus paid the price with his death. So back to our opening question, was forgiveness easy for God? No. He had to pay the price himself, the death of his only beloved son, so that his people could be set free. What's this talk of redeeming the transgressions committed under the first covenant? Well, the first covenant um, is not talking about the very first time in the Bible there was a covenant. It's talking, like all of chapters 8 to 10, about the first covenant, the, the covenant made at Mount Sinai. That's the first one he's thinking about, compared to the second one he's thinking about, which is the new covenant in Jesus. He's comparing those two. And he's talking about that covenant made at Mount Sinai, the law God gave to Israel. Now, if you want to know how that went, just flick back to chapter 8 again, um, where we'll use Jeremiah's summary of the history of Israel. Just to have a look at um, Hebrews 8, verse 9. Hebrews 8, verse 9, which speaks of this covenant. This is the first one in verse 9. That I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt... Now let's find out how it went. They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's where the covenant made at Sinai ended up. God's people had promised to obey, but they failed to. They broke covenant, and so found God as their enemy, not their friend. And we need to realize how serious this problem actually was. Someone had to buy God's people out of this predicament. It's actually the predicament all humanity are in. Right back at the start of the Bible, God says to Adam that he needs to obey God's voice or he will surely die. And in lots of ways, Israel get the same message at Mount Sinai. You must obey my voice when I put you in the land or you'll surely die. There was proportional sentencing for some crimes. But the bottom line was, if you reject me, the life giver, well, the penalty will be death. And so this is why forgiveness is hard to provide, because God is the just judge, and the legal requirement is death. God is the truth speaker, and he said to Adam, all humanity, 
If you reject me, you will surely die. He said the same to Israel. And we have. I don't know if you've ever discovered you're legally in the wrong on something. It's an awful position to be in. Horrible feeling. Mercifully, I've only experienced it with relatively trivial things. It still felt awful, but they were relatively trivial. Um, A letter saying you owe us more tax than you actually paid. Um, A ticket from uh, being in a box junction in Lewisham too long. And those kind of things. Even with those, there was that sinking feeling. Oh, no. I'm legally accountable. There's only one way out, which is paying the price. With the box junction, I actually wrote to Lewisham Council and I explained to them, hang on, hang on, there are mitigating factors because someone came from a side road. I think they came through a red light. They took the space I thought I was going to drive into. Um, Their reply was classic. They said, we've checked the camera and at exactly 6.23 p.m., your car was in the box junction for 24 seconds. Pay the fine. (laughs) You can see 10 years on, I'm still trying to process what I feel is an injustice about that whole situation. But okay, maybe there's ambiguity on that one. But with God, there's no injustice. He sees it all. And to be honest, there's, there's no ambiguity about how human beings treat him on his planet or how Israel treated him in the, in the land he gave them. We've broken every law in the book. It's not just a bonk's junction guilty, you need to pay the fine. Except the problem is the fine for breaking God's law is not just some kind of fixed penalty notice. It's not like forgetting to wear your seatbelt on camera. You can't just sign a check and hope it goes away. Israel had broken a legally binding covenant that they promised to obey. At which point, step in Jesus, verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them, pays the price for the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's like Jesus has seen the summons in the post. He's seen the legal trouble that they're in and steps in himself to pay, even at the cost of his own life. Proves himself the great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life to protect the flock. That's point one. Jesus' death paid the price that was required. Now I know if you've been a Christian for a while, that's probably familiar territory, that Jesus died to set us free, that we can be forgiven because he paid the price. I know it's familiar territory, but sometimes we need to stop and consider it a bit longer. That's what Hebrews is trying to get us to do, isn't it? Consider Jesus. And in lots of ways, the rest of the passage is just unpacking what an extraordinary, remarkable thing it is. How necessary Jesus' death was. That will be point two, verses 16 to 22. And how superior Jesus' death was than all the animal sacrifices of the old covenant. So bear with me and bear with the warm temperatures um, as we get into the details of why Jesus' death was so necessary. So let's have a look at um, point two, the necessity of Jesus' death. Now, something we've said before through Hebrews 
is that God deliberately spoke in the Old Testament to prepare the way for Jesus. In fact, he designed aspects of Old Testament religion to picture what would be needed for Jesus. Last week, we saw the tabernacle had built into its structure this no-entry sign. It showed you, you need a priest. You need some kind of holy meeting place. But you need a better priest, a better meeting place. It's like a miniature scale model to teach us that lesson. And here's the thing. If the tabernacle tent prepared the ground for Jesus entering heaven on our behalf, well, so the blood of animal sacrifices prepared the way for Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. It was another picture in miniature of what will be required to make difficult forgiveness possible. Now, there are a few um, complex details in here. Feel free to ask me about them afterwards. Um, Because of time, we're going to focus on the, the big message, which I think is actually really clear and simple, which is this. In the Old Covenant, there was blood everywhere. Just look at verse 22, which sums up the point. Indeed, under the law, verse 22 of chapter 9, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That gives you what happened. Almost everything purified by blood and why it happened. Because without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So blood was necessary, or in other words, death was necessary. And it is quite striking. When you look through the examples he refers to, they are quite striking ones. And verses 16 to 20 are are talking about the start of the covenant, when the covenant was kind of formalized in a ceremony. It was ratified, a kind of legal relationship between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. These days, if you want a legal relationship, uh, you get a smart fountain pen, some thick paper, and probably get it countersigned by a notary or something. I'm not an entire expert. Um, What you don't do is sign it in blood from an animal sacrifice. But verse 18, here, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. That's the start of the covenant. That's the first example of this. Second example, verse 21 In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, that's the tabernacle, and all the blessings used in worship. That's the the tent of meeting and its furnishing, the the tabernacle with all its furniture. And it was originally commissioned that way, and then every year it was purified that way at the Day of Atonement with blood. Just pause there. That's pretty striking, isn't it? When God moved in with his people... There was blood on the marriage certificate, the covenant. There was blood on their first home, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And there was blood on every anniversary, the Day of Atonement. And it didn't stop there. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. That kind of summarizes a lot of Leviticus. If you want some background for these chapters in Hebrews, it would be a great thing to read through Leviticus or listen to it this week. I've been doing that last week. Um, You'll discover a couple of things. You'll discover how often God's people are unclean. 
Uh, whether it's a skin infection or a runny nose or a mold problem in your house or if you'd had a baby or if you'd touched a dead body or if you'd sinned of all sorts and if you'd failed to witness to the truth, if you'd eaten unclean food. So many ways God's people ended up unclean, unable to approach the Lord. That's the first thing you'd notice. The second thing you'd notice is that there's no purification without blood. So big question, why blood? I mean, why sign a covenant in blood, not biro? Why was the tent of meeting purified by blood, not bleach? Now, there's a naive way of kind of writing off this Old Testament stuff. It's a kind of chronological snobbery, which looks back at all those aspects of Israel's culture and says, ah, well, it was just a primitive time, you know, just really cruel. They had no respect for animals, and they were full of superstition, just kind of making sacrifices left, right, and center to, to try and placate the gods. You know, kind of how naive that Israel would think that uh, you could deal with an outbreak of infectious disease or a skin disorder by, by blood. <laughs> if only they'd had Chris Whitty or Jason Leach, they would have told them that social isolation and, and careful monitoring of the symptoms was the right approach. All this blood sacrifice is nonsense. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus really carefully, you'll see that actually they did have social isolation They did have monitoring of symptoms. But the point about the blood was the biggest problem here is not just the infectious disease that might spread through the camp. The biggest problem is that we're not right with God. And the problems of a fallen world, whether it's disease or mold or something else, are just reminders. Things are not right with our Creator. And our creator needs to forgive us. And verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. What's so special about blood? Well, it's just shorthand for death. Someone had to pay. God provided animals to sacrifice, to maintain the relationship, to purify the meeting place. He was teaching us a price had to be paid. But of course, An animal will never do the business. We'll get to that next week, chapter 10, verse 4. They could never adequately take our place. The price had to be paid. That's the necessity of Jesus' death. God taught it over and over and over and over and over again in Exodus, in Leviticus, all through the history of Israel. I realize if you're sitting here not as a Christian, you might think, well, that's very strange. It's very strange. But God gave us plenty of warning to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. He prepared the way. See, when Jesus came, he didn't just come as a life coach. He didn't come to just provide more purpose or fulfillment in life. He does do those things. But his mission was to be a life savior, a a rescuer from death to pay the price, to achieve the impossible, actually, that a holy God could forgive people like us. If we are Christians, I hope even this short look at Hebrews 9 is starting to help us to appreciate the good news of Jesus even more. At this moment, we hear some words regularly in this church family that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup 
He blessed it. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And I think often that washes past us, kind of, oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's the bread, the, the wine. What he's saying is, this represents my death for you. Which was the one way we could be forgiven. Necessary blood. And finally, much more briefly, um, the superiority of Jesus' death, verses uh, 23 to 28. We're not going to spend ages here because we'll actually pick it up next week as well. I think it flows on into chapter 10. Um, But the key point is there in verse 23. Let me just read that. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, so that's like the tabernacle, to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things, that is God's actual presence, his holy throne room, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. A better sacrifice was required than animal sacrifices. And so verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. There's the complete wipe by the sacrifice of himself. How is Jesus' blood better than what was available in the Old Covenant. Well, it's offered in heaven, not in earth, God's real presence, his heavenly throne room. It's offering himself, not the blood of an animal, and we'll think more about that next week. And it's offered once, not repeatedly. It's striking that, because the one-off nature of Jesus' sacrifice can sometimes be what makes us nervous. Or perhaps what made these original listeners nervous, if they were used to going and making a sacrifice when they'd sinned. It might be slightly unnerving to have a priest you can't see in a holy place you can't see who's offered a sacrifice that doesn't need repeating. It's easy to think, am I really covered this week? Do I need to top it up with something? Well, no. The fact that Jesus only had to offer his sacrifice once is proof that it was effective in a way that none of the other sacrifices ever were. See, in Israel, the, the high priest was allowed uh, into the holy, most holy place one time, once a year, for one purpose, to spread the blood of atonement, and then had to retreat back behind the safety curtain. Verse 23 and 24 are saying, Jesus did this for us in heaven, Not because heaven is unclean itself, but because if we're ever going to meet God there, well, it needs to be purified from our sin. And when he went in, he stayed. So effective, so definitive was Jesus' death on the cross. Those words he said, it is finished. He meant it. His death, once for all, working backwards through history, saving God's people who trusted in the promise of salvation working forwards through history, covering us here tonight, whatever your week's been like. And it breaks the, the trap that humanity were under, the trap of death, kind of legally hanging over us. The fine had to be paid. 
Just listen as we come to a close. These great verses in verses 27 and 28. It is appointed, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 27 sums up the lot of humanity. Appointed for humans to die once. And after that comes judgment. We may not like the idea. We may not want to think about the idea or talk about the idea. But death is coming. And after that comes judgment. But Christ, look at how he's, he's broken the pattern. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Well, when he appears for us, it won't be for judgment. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I've been to a couple of funerals over the last couple of weeks. It's always sobering, isn't it? Humans are appointed to die. But with Christ, there is real hope. He will appear to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. On the Day of Atonement, actually, Israel faced an anxious wait. Their high priest went in where they couldn't see him to the holy place and then through the holy place into the most holy place, carrying the blood that was required to, to, um, to, to make um, atonement for them. And it was an anxious wait until he reappeared. Will it be enough? Will it be accepted? Will he survive? Now, Jesus hasn't come back out. Precisely because his death was so effective that he moved in to the most holy place. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so we do wait for him to return, but not the weight of anxiety. Is it enough this year? Are we really covered for another 12 months? Our wait for him is one of eager expectation because we have an unprecedented level of forgiveness. Full, total forgiveness. If we're Christians, I wonder, how, I wonder if we realize how good we have it in the new covenant relationship we enjoy. Let me pray. Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the death of Jesus. We thank you that it is all we need to be completely forgiven. We thank you that it is once for all, that it need not be repeated. We pray you'd help us to keep considering him. And we pray that you would help us to cherish the direct, guilt-free access we can have to your presence through his precious blood on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.